Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel, and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at laist.com slash events. Home Broadcast Center. This is Take Two. Me, Martinez. President Trump has been impeached again, this time for incitement of insurrection. The next step is sending the article to the Senate for a trial. But when will Speaker Pelosi do that, considering Mitch McConnell says a trial will not happen before Inauguration Day? And not to mention all of the constitutional questions that come along with it. We'll talk about all of it ahead on Take Two. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Thanks for being with us. A very busy day, so let's jump right on in. Now, as you've heard, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, has been impeached for a second time. Members of the House of Representatives have been debating all day on one article of impeachment accusing the President of high crimes and misdemeanors for fomenting the insurrection on Capitol Hill last week. Democrats gave many impassioned speeches in support of impeachment, uh, and a handful of their Republican colleagues joined in, calling for the president's removal. Ten Republicans in total. But with the clock now ticking on the president's term and the Senate in recess, the future of the process remains unclear. Later in the show, we're going to hear from California Congressman Adam Schiff for his take on the morning's events. But we're going to start with the legal analysis of today's debate. And joining us for that is Fernita Tolson, Vice Dean of Faculty and Academic Affairs and Professor of Law at the USC Gould School of Law. Dean Tolson, uh, what were you paying attention to the most as you watched this debate between uh, House Democrats and Republicans on impeachment? Hi. First, let me thank you for having me on the show. Um, And listening to the proceedings today, I was just really interested to hear why impeachment is a bad idea, Um, because I think there's significant evidence to the contrary, uh, especially if um, your listeners watched what unfolded at the Capitol last Wednesday. Um, And so I paid pretty close attention to the rationale given by Republicans who were willing to vote against impeachment. Um, And one thing that kind of stood out to me was this willingness to use procedure as an out, right, This, this claim that the procedure is being rushed through, that the impeachment is hasty. Um, but I, I do think that 
you know, procedure should not defeat substance, right? We What happened last week was unprecedented. And so impeachment is an important reset for this country. And so I don't, I don't know how persuasive they were to people who are not in the Republican Trump base. Uh, but that, that's one thing that struck me, that they were willing to use procedure in order to uh, avoid coming to some decision about the merits of whether or not the president should be impeached. And, and Dean Tolson, that's exactly what I was going to ask you next, because it, still, it is extraordinary, isn't it, that a president gets impeached in one day? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> let's let's keep in mind, though, impeachment is rare, right? There's only yeah. been three presidents who've been impeached, and uh, President Trump has the uh, unfortunate de- designation of having been impeached twice now. Um, so, so impeachment, as it goes, is not a, a, a process that we see unfold very much. Uh, but yes, it has been um, it has happened under very, very uh, quick circumstances, but in part, I think that's a response to what happened. Right? I think that impeaching this quickly is a message that, as a democracy, we cannot stand for what happened last week. And so I actually don't think the timing is a bad thing, because impeachment is also about sending a message. Is there anything lost, though, by not having an inquiry, not having any hearings? Um. It depends, right? So keep in mind we're living in a time of very high polarization. Um, We had extensive hearings during the first impeachment proceeding, um, and so that really didn't have much effect of moving the needle, right? The people who believe that the president should be impeached voted for impeachment, the Democrats. The people who believed he didn't deserve to be impeached voted against it, the Republicans. I think what's significant this time around is that you have the first bipartisan impeachment, right? So 10 Republicans join with their Democratic colleagues to, to vote to impeach this president. And then you also have four Republicans who didn't vote. So that, that also strikes me as significant. Um, and so if anything, the fact that you have Republicans joining Democrats, uh, I think that allays any concerns about uh, the proceedings being hasty. Now, when the trial begins, and we're going to get into that in just a few minutes, when it does, though, begin in the Senate, do, do you expect whoever steps forward to defend the president on this to use the speed of the impeachment as part of their defense? Oh, absolutely. Right. So I think what we got today was a preview of arguments that will be unveiled um, at at further length during the trial. So there'll be arguments about procedure. There'll also be sort of this conflation between uh, the standards for if the president is indicted for incitement versus if he's been impeached for it. Right. Those are two different standards. If a prosecutor goes after the president for incitement, there's a higher bar to clear, whereas impeachment is a political proceeding. Right. So political meaning that, uh, you know, what constitutes a high crime or misdemeanor is decided by Congress. And, it, and you, so you, today you heard a lot of language like due process, the president is being deprived of due process, um, that uh, the president is being uh, basically tried without any evidence, any hearings. They're using all of this language from criminal law in, a, in an effort to confuse people. It's not required because this isn't a criminal proceeding. One more thing on the speed of this, uh, uh, Dean Tolson. Uh, Is there any danger in setting this precedent? Uh, Say down the line there is a Republican House and a Republican Senate and a Democratic president? I think the greater danger is in not doing anything at all. Right. I think that accountability is important. And in order for us to heal as a country, uh, somebody has to be held accountable. And I think that the Congress has decided that the president shares uh, some level of responsibility for the events that unfolded last week. And so um, impeachment is a process that is laid out in our Constitution. And our Congress has decided that this is how they'll hold the president accountable Um, in terms of precedence, possibly. Uh, but the, the the possibility of like really moving forward, if we're serious about that, it requires that we, uh, you know, review everything that happened with sufficient seriousness and hold people accountable. And I think Congress did that today. 
talking to, we're talking to Fernita Tolson, Vice Dean of Faculty and Academic Affairs and Professor of Law at the USC Gould School of Law. Now, the House uh, had its day today, but now we'll uh, find out what happens when the article of impeachment goes to the Senate. And actually, before that, uh, Dean Tolson, when do you think the article will head over? It could head over right now. It could head over in a week. It could head over in 100 days. Uh, what you think goes into the political calculations of uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi in terms of when she sends this over? Well, I think that in part your question hit it on the head, right? This idea that this is a political proceeding, which means that momentum matters, right? People are still thinking about what happened last week. There's a lot of, um, despite the fact that a lot of Republicans voted against impeaching a president today, I think that the majority of Americans feel very strongly about the events that unfolded. And so because there's political momentum, I don't think that they can sit on the article of impeachment for too long before sending it over to the Senate. Now, keep in mind, we're only a week out from the inauguration. So functionally, that means that um, a trial will likely be um, conducted after January 20th. Um, and I, and I, I don't anticipate that Speaker Pelosi will wait too much longer than that to send the, the article over because this is a political proceeding and so political momentum matters. Yeah, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, has rejected holding an emergency session for a trial. Uh, the earliest it can happen is the 19th when the senators are uh, back from uh, recess. So at the very least, yeah, you're right, uh, uh, Dean Tolson, it, it'll happen during the Biden administration uh, for sure. What do you make of Mitch McConnell's delay there? Um, so I think he's strategizing, right? So on one hand, he has to be concerned about the donor base. You know, some corporations have come out and um, basically repudiated the president's actions in very strong language. And so um, they have pledged not to give donations to, um, to, to, to certain Republicans and, and Democrats more generally. Um, and so when it starts to affect the bottom line, you know, money, political power, I do think that McConnell um, has to, to think about his path forward in light of that thing. Uh, th- those things. And so part of this is if he does not hold a trial while he's still Senate Majority Leader, um, he also avoids getting his membership on the record about how they uh, view impeachment. Uh, but Trump is still very popular in this party. I think the, the fact that most of the Republican caucus refused to vote for impeachment today signals that they are sticking with their guy. And so McConnell has to balance these twin concerns. One, you know, avoiding his uh, membership from uh, being punished at the ballot box for turning against Trump. But on the other hand, he has to be concerned about donors who are withholding funds because of what happened last week. Now, when the House uh, does send the article to the Senate, uh, they'll start the trial. It'll take two-thirds of a vote uh, to convict. What would also have to happen, uh, Dean Tolson, to disqualify President Trump from holding that office in the future? So once the Senate convicts, they can um, impose another disability on the president, right? They can, by simple majority vote, determine that he should no longer be able to hold federal office again, um, which is a very important sanction. And I think this is really what's driving um, the impeachment uh, momentum, in part because of this concern that if the president runs again in 2024, this is something that can happen again. And so this is an effort to prevent that. Would a conviction in the Senate have to happen before they could uh, go with that other vote, with that simple majority vote to disqualify him from office? Yes, it's predicated on a conviction. Okay, so that has to happen first before the other can happen. All right, now, President Trump could obviously challenge this, and I can't imagine that he wouldn't. Uh, What's the Supreme Court's history on things like this? Um, 
it will be very difficult, if not impossible, for the president to challenge this in the courts. As I mentioned, this is a political process and not a legal one. And um, the case law suggests that this would um, be the case. Uh, there's a case uh, involving a Judge Nixon, ironically, <laughs> where he challenged the fact that he didn't receive a full trial in the Senate prior to being convicted um, and removed from office. And the Supreme Court said that that was a political question that they couldn't weigh in on. So the, the Supreme Court has already issued a pretty strong uh, stance on impeachment, i.e. it's not something that they want to get their hands dirty with. So it's unlikely that if President Trump is convicted, he'll have any avenues through the courts. Now, the 14th Amendment could also be in play. That's where lawmakers could declare Trump uh, engaged in insurrection or rebellion. What would have to happen for that to be the end result? I'm not sure we need it, right? Mm-hmm. So impeachment is a process in and of itself that allows the removal of um, the president. I think Section 3 of the 14th Amendment raises questions that um, are that kind of muddies the water. So, so first of first off, it's not clear that Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment even applies to the president, right? It mentions senators, representatives. It mentions electors for president and vice president um, as those who, if they've engaged in insurrection against the union, they cannot uh, run for state or federal office. But it does not explicitly mention the president, right? But um, to be clear, I still think Section Three is important, right? Because it is an articulation of. Um, a penalty for um, going against established government. And so it should inform our understanding of what's a high crime and misdemeanor under the impeachment provision. Um, So to that extent, I think it's relevant, right? So I don't think that there's a serious argument that inciting insurrection against the government is not an impeachable offense. And I think you can point to Section 3 as evidence of that. Mm -hmm. But whether or not that section directly applies to the president is a separate question. Yeah, because I was thinking if if Congress, say, decides that he is guilty of this crime could it there could there be an argument that only the judiciary could actually judge someone of a crime and punish them not the legislature i don't think so right because we're not as i'm as i mentioned this is not uh, a situation where the the president is being indicted for inciting a riot instead he's being subject to the political penalty of impeachment and possible conviction um and so uh, it's in, in that context, you can see why it, this the political proceeding is different from the legal one and why the courts don't want to get involved. But what that means is that a high crime or misdemeanor and what behavior is subject to impeachment is determined by Congress. This is why, you know, Congress can impeach uh, Bill Clinton for lying under oath about whether or not he received, you know, sexual favors or whatever, um, because Congress ultimately decide what is impeachable conduct. Conduct is not up to the courts. That's Renita Tolson, Vice Dean of Faculty and Academic Affairs and Professor of Law at the USC Gould School of Law. Dean Tolson, as always, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, coming up next, it's California Congressman Adam Schiff on what he thinks will happen next and his thoughts on the second impeachment. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. 
Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. The House of Representatives spent much of the morning into the afternoon debating whether to impeach President Trump for a second time. Well, the vote uh, came in just before 2 o'clock today with 232 members, including 10 Republicans, supporting his removal from office. 197 were against. California Democratic uh, Congressman Adam Schiff was there, and here is a portion of what he had to say today. One week ago, the president incited an insurrection against Congress to prevent the peaceful transition of power. It was the most dangerous moment for our democracy in a century. Today, we invoke the remedy the founders provided for just such a lawless president, impeachment. More important, today we begin the long road to restoration. Now, Congressman Schiff is joining us uh, now. Welcome back, uh, Congressman. Thank you. Good to be with you. Now, uh, quite an extraordinary day today. Uh, first off, your your impressions of how things went. Well, I'm grateful that uh, some of my Republican colleagues um, honored their oath uh, and undertook the responsibility of removing this president. Um, there's no question that inciting insurrection is an impeachable offense. Uh, and I, in my view, there's no question that every day this president remains in office, he is a clear and present danger to the country. Uh, so it was a, a grave decision we made today, but I don't think it was a difficult decision. Uh, and as uh, as you played in that clip, I hope that it's part of the process of restoring our democracy after a period of great uh, turmoil and degradation of our democratic institutions. It was 10 of your Republican colleagues in the House, Congressman. Were you hoping for more, or is that uh, sound about right? I would have liked to see more uh, Republicans uh, show their support for removal of the president. But frankly, I was uh, pretty uh, circumspect about uh, how many would do so. After all, more than 140 of those Republican members, two-thirds of their entire conference, even after this bloody insurrection effort, we're back on the House floor propagating the president's lie further, still challenging the election results. Uh, so uh, not much has changed for, for many of them. Uh, there's no sense of introspection or, uh, or the realization of the role that they have played in bringing our democracy so low. Uh, so not a surprise that we didn't get more, uh, although I still, still held, held out hope that we would. What do you think this says about the attitudes in Washington, D.C. right now? Well, uh, you know, we are in a period of, of enormous uh, division, um, and Donald Trump still maintains an iron grip uh, on the Republican Party. But there are very real fractures. Uh, the number three Republican in the House spoke out forcefully uh, in calling for the president's impeachment. Um, Mitch McConnell has been equivocating, so I don't know really where he is uh, coming from on this at this point. Um, but 
I do think that maybe, maybe we're seeing the fever break uh, and maybe Republicans can recapture their party and make it a party of conservative ideology again and not uh, a party of the person of Donald Trump. Do you want Speaker Pelosi to send the article over as soon as possible to the Senate? I will leave that decision to uh, Speaker Pelosi. Uh, Mitch McConnell has made it clear that he will not bring it up immediately. Um, Given the threat this president poses, I I think that's a dereliction. Uh, But I will leave it to the the speaker to make that decision. Well, what would you prefer, Congressman? I mean, you, you, you have a voice in this. You've had a voice in this for a long time. Well, you know, my preference uh, is really not the the, uh, the dictating factor here. Uh, there's a new team of impeachment managers uh, led by one of my very, very capable friends and colleagues, Jamie Raskin. Uh, and I would prefer to see the speaker consult with Jamie and making those decisions than, uh, than myself. Why weren't you uh, a manager? Any idea why that didn't happen? I was a manager in the last uh, impeachment because the investigation originated in my committee. Um, I was deeply familiar with the facts, having spent months uh, investigating them and bringing them to light. Uh, so I, I think that made a, a lot of sense. This is a different case entirely. Uh, judiciary is the committee that normally handles impeachment. Uh, and the speaker chose a completely new uh, team. Uh, and I think that was uh, perfectly appropriate. And looking at the members of the team, uh, they're extraordinarily capable members, and I have every confidence they will uh, perform with the kind of solemnity and dignity and intelligence uh, that, that is required of the task. Congressman, do you see any advantage to uh, doing what your colleague Jim Clyburn suggested, to wait at least maybe 100 days for the president-elect to set his agenda, uh, confirm his uh, cabinet, and, and allow some space between what has happened recently and the next administration? Uh, I don't want to see the process drawn out. Um, I think it, it's advantageous to the country that this be resolved. Um, uh, you know, frankly, uh, I think it should be resolved uh, before this president leaves office, uh, as I mentioned, because every day is another danger. Uh, but if it's not, uh, I think it nonetheless should be resolved with alacrity uh, so that uh, the country can move on. Um, but I, I do think that the remedy that the founders provided of, of disbarring someone, of preventing them from running or holding office again, was made for a president like Donald Trump, uh, because we should have every confidence that if he were permitted to run again, he would cheat again, he would lie again, he would incite people to violence again. Uh, and this remedy, uh, this second part of the impeachment remedy, um, was made for a president just like this. So as you said, Congressman, if you would prefer that this happen before the president leave office, wouldn't that require Speaker Pelosi to send the article over today, now? Well, it would require Mitch McConnell uh, to be willing to entertain it if she did. Uh, and she, Mitch McConnell issued another statement today saying he won't do it. Uh, so under those circumstances, um, uh, you know, I think it will be up to the speaker um, in consultation with our caucus to decide on the timing. As far as uh, what you mentioned, uh, not or disqualifying uh, President Trump from ever running for president again, how important do you think it is to make sure that that is a part of this, that that happens? I think it's very important. Uh, you know, I would hope and pray that that uh, having his uh, immoral character exposed to the, the rest of the country, that he would never be a viable candidate for uh, anything ever again. 
but nevertheless, viable or not viable, um, if permitted to run, uh, he will once again lie, agitate, divide, incite, uh, and um, there's there's no purpose to be gained by having the country go through that again, or have that uh, that sword of Damocles hanging over our head for another four years. Uh, so I, I think it's a very appropriate remedy, a very fitting remedy, uh, and I certainly hope the Senate utilizes it. Now, if um, if all of this indeed does play out after uh, Joe Biden is inaugurated, what does this get us as a country? What's what's being achieved? Because we heard your colleagues uh, in in the House talk about the division that this all could cause. Wouldn't wouldn't you want the focus to be on Joe Biden and Kamala Harris at this point? You know, I think there's going to have to be a balance as we move forward between the need for accountability and the need to heal. Um, if there's uh, no repercussion in the sense of no bar to this president again, um, if that work is left undone, um, will it be an encouragement to others uh, to uh, similarly lie about our political process and similarly agitate and similarly try to cheat, um, knowing that the, the Senate won't follow through? Um, that, that the parties will always fall back on their party affiliations in, in deciding the results of an impeachment. Um, so that has to be balanced against the need to move the country forward, to bring people together. I, I do think that um, there's no one better situated than Joe Biden to be able to strike the right balance. This is someone who is just so fundamentally decent, someone who suffered great loss and tragedy and uh, has personal experience with healing, and I think that he will bring that experience to bear in helping the country move forward. Congressman Schiff, in your remarks today, of which uh, we heard a part of the a part of them uh, in the introduction, you mentioned the the very long road to restoration. Now uh, we don't have a lot of time left, but what does that look like to you? What it looks like to me is rebuilding our democratic institutions, uh, giving the Department of Justice back its independence making sure that the intelligence agencies aren't politicized, uh, reinvigorating our State Department, uh, making sure that uh, the president doesn't interfere uh, with the courts or abuse the pardon power. Um, It's a whole set of institution rebuilding reforms. Uh, Removing Donald Trump is one remedy, but it's not not at all the the full remedy that we need. And, And finally, and probably the biggest task we have, is confronting this issue of bigotry, because running through this bloody insurrection um, was a virulent strain of white nationalism. And unless we confront that demon, um, we won't be able to move forward as a country. That's California Congressman Adam Schiff. Congressman, thank you very much. Thank you. You just heard Congressman Schiff talk about the rioters storming the U.S. Capitol, waving Confederate flags. Many in our country are really looking around at where white supremacist or racist ideology has been hiding in plain sight. Now, in California, that also includes law enforcement. Based on a report that looked at police action back in 2019, the Racial and Identity Profiling Advisory Board is recommending that California police officers, actually police agencies, routinely check officers' social media posts, their computers, and their cell phones for racist, bigoted, or offensive content. Melanie P. Ochoa is a senior staff attorney at ACLU Southern California and a member of that advisory board. Melanie, the report looked at nearly 4 million vehicle and pedestrian 
pedestrian stops done by 15 California law enforcement agencies in 2019. Uh, Give us some of the data you found. Police performed consent searches on black and Latino people more than twice the rate that they performed them on whites. And consent searches mean that police have no legal basis for a search. That person is not under arrest. There's no factual basis to reasonably suspect that the person has committed a crime. They are just routinely asking black and Latino people to search their persons or property, even though they have no objective reason to believe that they will find any evidence of a crime. And hit rates, um, meaning the likelihood of actually finding any contraband, once they complete a search, were also lower for black, Latino, and Native American individuals than whites, despite the fact that police search them more often than whites. And police were also more likely to use force against black and Latino individuals, nearly one and a half and 1.2 times greater, respectively, than against whites. And then in addition to race, individuals perceived as having a disability were searched, detained, and handcuffed at substantially higher rates. For instance, they were searched 43% of the time versus 11% for those not perceived to have a disability. And individuals that police perceived to be gender nonconforming or transgender actually had much higher rates of arrest than cisgender men or women. So, for instance, trans women had the highest rate of arrest at 30%, while cisgender females had the lowest rate of arrest for all gender categories at around 11%. You know, over the years, we've seen different uh, police officers uh, be found out in certain areas of social media that uh, may be white supremacist groups or groups that share racist ideology. Is it fair to say that if those officers are in those social media groups, that that attitude may translate to their job when they're policing the public? I think that's absolutely the presumption. It should be the presumption. Um, We have violent gangs operating out of LASD, the Sheriff's Department here in Los Angeles, who have adopted racist views. And then we see that they are shooting Black and Latino individuals, we believe, as as part of their process of earning their stripes as members of those racist gangs. And so I think absolutely we should presume that these attitudes and these actions are infecting the way that they police. We see where there are white supremacist protesters and counter-protesters supporting Black Lives matter what we see officers stopping arresting conducting force only against those who are in opposition to the white supremacist protesters so i mean time and again we see that people are being treated differently because of the views that they espouse and the color of their skin where i think anti-bias training in the past has focused on trying to remove those views from officers under the assumption that they don't intend to act on latent biases they may have I think the public is starting to acknowledge that there are people on the force who are affirmatively endorsing these views and seeking outlets to act on them. And we need to focus on both removing those officers from position of authority, but also scaling back the ways in which police interact with the public in the first place so that we do not provide opportunities for them to exercise these biases and racist attitudes. Now, one of the board's recommendations is for agencies to review department-issued cell phones and computers, uh, as well as social media for racist or or bigoted or offensive content. Uh, Who does the board recommend be tasked with doing this? The agency should be the one at the first stage doing that. Depending on the agency, there may be other entities involved in the hiring practice. We need to fund things like the Law Enforcement Accountability Project in the Office of the Public Defender here in L.A., which actually does attempt to actively engage in the searching of officers' backgrounds to identify bias. But I think the agency has to have that duty. If we can't trust them to do it, then we need to be hiring outside 
entities to be engaged in this process and fund them appropriately. Yeah, because that's the thing, right, Melody? It would benefit the law enforcement agency not to search too hard, right? I mean, <laughs> if, if they find something, it, it only would be a, a PR nightmare for them. So, I mean, couldn't they be trusted to really search and, and root out these attitudes? I think that's the crux of it right there, right? That it would, that these agencies would view rooting out racist officers as bad for them, right? You would think that the first duty of these agencies would be to make sure that they are legitimately and without bias performing the duties that are being tasked to them. And if that is not their primary function, then we really need to be completely rethinking what these agencies are doing in our communities in the first place. What would be the guidelines for determining what falls into offensive content or maybe problematic behavior on social media for a police officer? That's probably a larger conversation, but I think fundamentally anything that evinces bias in favor of or against groups or people based on their characteristics, whether they believe people are inferior, whether they believe people are prone to violence, whether they believe that others should be free to act as they wish as long as their victims are of a certain race or gender or religious orientation. I think anything that indicates that officers are viewing people in the community that they police with disfavor is evidence that they are unfit to serve. Is it reasonable if a police officer says, well, that's my personal life, that those are my personal views, um, that doesn't spill over into my work? I think that's not a reasonable statement to make for people who are given guns and given the opportunity to, to operate in our communities. I think defending the right of officers, people who have the authority to use deadly force, people whose statements regarding what they saw or heard or did are usually taken for gospel truth and have life or death consequences for others. Defending their right to hold views that certain members of the community are inferior is just antithetical to unbiased policing. And that is fundamentally what officers need to be doing. If they can't fulfill that, um, or if there's even a question that they can't fulfill that, then they are not fit to serve. That's Melanie P. Ochoa, Senior Staff Attorney at ACLU SoCal and member of the Racial and Identity Profiling Advisory Board. Melanie, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. All right, listen to this mission statement. Jump out boys are alpha dogs who think and act like the wolf but never become the wolf. They understand when the line needs to be crossed and crossed back. So who do you think the jump out boys are? Hate group? Extremist militia group? No, they're L.A. County Sheriff's deputies. Hear all about them when Take Two continues. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. All right, listen to this creed out of the Jump Out Boys. That's a secret gang or clique that was once inside the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. It goes like this. Jump Out Boys are alpha dogs who think and act like the wolf but never become the wolf. They understand when the line needs to be crossed and crossed back. Now, that group had matching skull tattoos and allegedly saw deputies getting involved in shootings as a badge of honor. Seven members of that clique were eventually fired in 2013, but a recent L.A. Times investigation found that four of them, four of them, were rehired over the years. Waylon Cunningham is the journalist and the L.A. Times special correspondent behind that report. Waylon, uh, so who are or who were the Jump Out Boys? This group is probably not really a presence in the department anymore, I mean, from you know my research into it and looking at a lot of legal filings and looking at the investigation, it's pretty clear that this was a nascent group, one that, you know, unlike the executioners or the banditos or any number of these other cliques, never got off to the ground to the point that they had any more than seven or so members. They describe themselves as hardworking. I mean, that's something that, that you find in a lot of their interviews with internal investigators. They would describe themselves as hardworking deputies. They were hard-charging. They took their job very seriously. They wanted to take bad guys to jail, and they had a very serious mindset about that. It's also important to note the unit that they were in, specifically inside the department's anti-gang street unit. Their mission is to drive around neighborhoods with high gang activity. As they cruise around looking, it appears usually for young men to aggressively interrogate and often detain. And a lot of what the creed talked about actually is an articulation of what many critics have said, uh, you know, is true of the unit as a whole. They have a lot of hard-charging tactics and a hard-charging culture within it. You know, I, I read part of that creed uh, at the top there, and one, one line was they understand when the line needs to be crossed and crossed back. So I'm wondering, I mean, to me, that kind of sounds as if they might be doing things that they shouldn't be doing in the normal course of police work. I mean, is, is there any evidence of them maybe planning evidence or doing something they shouldn't be doing? So particularly with the jump-out boys or the alleged members of it, There are a couple of them that were criminally charged after they were fired by the department with planting guns and conspiracy to obstruct justice. And the allegations from the department stemmed from a uh, raid on a marijuana dispensary by these two deputies. And surveillance tape showed what appeared to be the deputies placing guns on a desk and uh, a course of events that, that did not really correspond with what one of those deputies had written had happened. They said they chased a guy in there who they saw doing some sort of drug deal on the sidewalk. They saw him throw a gun behind a trash can. Their surveillance video showed something very different. They didn't chase anyone in. There was no gun thrown behind a trash can. And furthermore, several guns that weren't in the video seemed to appear in the police reports. Those charges were dropped against one of those deputies because the Jump Out Boys Creed was precluded as evidence in the case. The other deputy involved in that ended up pleading no contest to a misdemeanor charge of filing a false police report. Uh, In another instance, the same deputy who had those charges dropped was also the subject of a wrongful death suit brought by the family of a young man who was shot and killed in Watts. 
And now that deputy, Anthony Paez, claimed that the young man had a gun when he shot him, but the family denied that. And a lawyer for the family said that the investigation into the shooting had been corrupted by the involvement and intervention of jump-out boys. The county didn't admit any wrongdoing, and to be clear, none of those deputies were found in the internal investigation to have engaged in any misconduct in that shooting. However, the county did pay out $1.5 million. Talking to uh, Waylon Cunningham, journalist, uh, L.A. Times special correspondent behind this investigative report. Um, leadership of the L.A. Sheriff's Department, how, how have they responded to the Jump Out Boys? They fired them in 2013 to begin with, and they made a big deal of it at the time. They said it was the beginning of a department cleaning house. But of course, you know, as this report shows, that quickly unraveled through appeals and lawsuits. These cliques have been around for a very long time, and they've long been a thorn in the side of the department, and they've long been a source of criticism from a lot of civil rights groups. But the department has never really taken any strong stances or actions against them. This was the boldest action they'd taken yet. The department was clearly not happy about these uh, deputies being reinstated. And I should also note that this is important. The department did not choose to rehire these deputies. Instead, it was a decision handed down by the county's Civil Service Commission and by subsequent courts. Top sheriff's officials that testified in the appeals said that these deputies presented a tremendous liability to the department. I do also want to make clear that the four deputies that were rehired are those deputies that claimed ignorance of the creed to investigators and later uh, in, in the appeals courts. So not all the deputies even admitted that they had known about the creed. Uh, we do also know that the department has apparently introduced at least a couple of policies that appear to be in response to the jump out boys. So during the course of the investigation into the creed, so we're talking back in 2013, the department introduced a new policy that prohibited deputies from getting tattoos that uh, expressed values contrary to the department's code. And the language in that policy showed up later in these deputies' firing letters. That tattoo policy was actually it was defeated by a challenge from the union. The department wasn't even actually able to enact that policy. But last year, Sheriff Villanueva introduced a new click policy, and the department told me that the Jump Out Boys case partially necessitated that policy because the exact discipline meted out against these deputies at the time was a little awkward, was a little shoehorned in because they didn't have an exact policy to address this kind of thing, even though these cliques have been a phenomenon for several decades now. Is this an issue of the sheriff's department just simply not being able to police itself? This is something that ties into a long-standing failure on the part of the department to get a grip on its deputy cliques and groups. But it also reflects a difficulty in pursuing discipline because there's a whole host of institutions that make discipline more complicated or push back on it or allow for the influence of the deputy's union. So this is an instance where even what the department wants to do has to contend with a host of institutions. Now there are some that would say that that's justice and that these deputies did nothing wrong and that the system worked entirely as intended. But there are others that might say this was a case in which the department's judgment 
was overturned by these legal bodies that were opened up to the influence of these deputy unions. That's Waylon Cunningham, journalist and L.A. Times special correspondent behind the investigative report. Waylon, thank you very much. Thanks. Well, there aren't many people in America that didn't have some kind of reaction to the attack on the Capitol building last week. Hollywood is now weighing in, but they're weighing in with their dollars and cents. We'll find out how when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. I get a good feeling, yeah. Yeah. I get a feeling that I never, 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 never had before. No, no. Yeah. It's almost a sin to hear my voice after that, but I'm back. Take two, 89.3 KPCC. I'm A. Martinez. In the wake of the uh, January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, corporate America is voicing their response with their dollars. And that includes some pretty big names in Hollywood. The Walt Disney Company, AT&T, Comcast, and the Motion Picture Association. Just a handful who have paused political funding in the wake of the insurrection. For this and a lot more, it's time to go on the lot. your head out and yell. You want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And joining us as always, Rebecca Keegan, Senior Editor for Film for The Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, welcome back. Hi, eh? All right, uh, give us the lay of the land of how Hollywood Studios, companies, and organizations have responded to the events uh, of January 6th. Well, I like corporations in other industries, the entertainment industry, uh, folks are condemning the riots in the Capitol and distancing themselves from the Republican politicians who voted to overturn the election results. Uh, Disney, as you mentioned, AT&T, which is the company that owns Warner Media, Comcast, which owns Universal, and the Motion Picture Association, which is the lobbying group that works on behalf of all the major studios in Washington, including Netflix, have all said they will not be making contributions to those uh, politicians going forward. Do we know what kind of political contributions these companies have made in the past and to, and to who? 
Yeah, we do. I, it, you know, individual political donations in Hollywood tend to go largely to Democratic candidates, but the studio's PACs are typically much more bipartisan in their support. Um, so, for instance, in the last election cycle, Disney gave about $72,000 to Democrats and 53000 to Republicans, including some of the Republicans in the House who voted to overturn the election results, such as Ben Klein of Virginia, Bill Johnson of Ohio, and others. So this will have a, you know, sort of measurable impact on some of these politicians. You know, Rebecca, this reminds me of, uh, remember the anti-trans so-called bathroom bill in North Carolina? That was a few years mm-hmm. ago. Yeah, a bunch of Hollywood studios and companies pulled productions out of North Carolina. Remind us if that had any effect on the politics there and what you think the effects uh, uh, could be of these recent events. Right. I mean, in addition to Hollywood, I think the NCAA threatened to pull yeah, some events yeah. from North Carolina. And the, the net financial impact on the state was substantial enough that that portion of the bill uh, was struck. This is sort of different in that studios aren't threatening to withhold business in the states of these legislators, at least not yet. They're merely withholding their donations. I, I don't think we know yet what the impact will be, but certainly hitting people in their pocketbooks in this country historically has made an impact. All right. Now, moving on uh, from politics to the pandemic, after uh, production resumed in the fall, we were hit uh, with a surge. So what is the latest on how Hollywood is getting uh, back to work in and around L.A.? Well, much of Hollywood had gone dark over the holidays voluntarily uh, in response to a request from the county health department after the covid numbers in L.A. began to get really disastrous. Shoot permit numbers were way down in December. Some productions extended their holiday hiatuses, just didn't come back after the holidays. Uh, But folks are starting to get back into production this week. Um, CBS's All Rise, Showtime Shameless, and Netflix's You are all getting back to work. Not everybody is thrilled about this. For instance, SAG-AFTRA is recommending productions in L.A., continue to stay shut down until the COVID numbers come down. I got to admit, Rebecca, I was a little surprised. I was driving into work here at KPCC in Pasadena and like a block away from us, I saw a lot of men and women in cargo shorts unloading a truck. They were unloading lights. And that's what I think what a lot of Hollywood people wear is cargo shorts to, to, to hold things. Um, yeah, so It's I, so true. That is the signature uh, wardrobe of the crew member. Um, but yeah, it is surprising to see productions up and running right now, given LA numbers being what they are. I think the industry points to the very low rate of transmission on sets because of testing, PPE, et cetera. But despite that, I think there are a lot of people in LA who think that um, they should remain closed. You combine cargo shorts with a fanny pack, and but you, you're just as functional as it gets, I think. Yes, Rebecca. and like six kinds of tape. That's, That's true, too, have. right? You need to hold stuff. <laughs> yes. uh, Rebecca, well, what companies or networks uh, seem to be doing best in terms of stocking their shelves for uh, new TV shows and films in the coming months? Well, Netflix is definitely taking the responsibility of entertaining us all during the pandemic very seriously. Um, yesterday, the streaming company shared a sizzle reel of the new films they have coming in 2021, more than one week. Um, many of them are acquisitions from traditional film studios that have been largely put out of business these last nine months. So there may be, you know, sort of net the same number of movies coming out of the industry. It's just that of huge number of them are being released on Netflix because they have the ability to get them out there. As far as shooting new films, there are precious few that are in production right now. These are mostly movies that were already shot and are just coming out.
Talking to Rebecca Keegan, senior film editor at The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, finally, Rebecca, you have a great interview with Pixar head Pete Docter in The Hollywood Reporter. He's the co-director and co-writer of their newest film, Soul. By the way, later this week, I'm going to run uh, the interview I had with Kemp Powers, who's the other writer-director on the film. But Docter has another bigger role at Pixar. Rebecca, tell us uh, what he's in charge of and how he got there. Yeah, I'm glad you guys talked to Kent Powers. He's the first black co-director at Pixar. Really interesting guy. Pete Docter is the chief creative officer of Pixar, and he's had that job for about 18 months. He took over for John Lasseter, who left the company um, in a letter in which he apologized for, quote-unquote, missteps in his uh, relationships with employees. This happened in the early months of the Me Too movement that Lasseter stepped away Pete Doctor is a, is a really different kind of a leader than John Lasseter, um, but very well liked and has taken on a kind of enormous responsibility in being the first person since Pixar was founded, besides John Lasseter, to lead the company. What's he doing differently to evolve the company and to move past the Lasseter scandal? Well, in some ways, they're just very different in their leadership styles. Uh, Lasseter was the sort of gregarious, you know, loudest voice in the room. Doctor's a much more kind of thoughtful, um, introverted guy, but there have been some sort of concrete changes. You'll see more uh, female directors, more directors of color. They have also instituted these um, creative advisory teams to weigh in on all kinds of issues with with their films. And those teams are 50% female and um, inclusive in terms of all different factors, which is something that was important uh to doctor as as Pixar moves forward. Has he said like what's gotten in the way of, of not being as diverse for Pixar in the past, not having uh, women and, and people of color in the studio in the past? You know, it's interesting when I talk to a lot of women and people of color who work there, um, they say that there was this feeling of just being so rare at the company that when they would meet each other, it would be like two people, Adomi Shi, the new, uh, <laughs> the director of their upcoming movie, Turning Red, Turning Red said when she'd meet another woman in animation, they would just like grab each other like they were on a raft. I think a certain amount of this was a pipeline issue and a certain amount of it was a cultural issue within Pixar of not kind of elevating those folks at the studio and bringing in more. All right, that's Rebecca Keegan, senior film editor at The Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, talk to you next week. Bye-bye. All right, today we broke it all down. The mechanics of impeachment, reaction from one of our congressmen here in California. You should get it all downloaded to your earbuds. Just head to wherever you get your podcast. There, Take Two will be waiting to be heard by you. We're also on Twitter, at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A Martinez LA. That's A Martinez LA. And that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.